What is up, everybody? This is the TMI Podcast, and today we have Isaac. And Josh. And I'm Max. And uh, Max, I want to ask you, how is Christ's resurrection historically valid? That's a good question. Um, when, we, when we look at the historicity of Jesus Christ's resurrection, we're really looking at, um, really comparing it to events that are kind of contemporary um, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So one way I love to look at it is comparing it to the assassination of Julius Caesar. Another one that's pretty popular is Hannibal and his elephants kind of crossing the Alps. Um, and when looking at that, I really want to look at kind of two things. Number one, just the, the amount of witnesses to the historical event and how recent they were to that event, right? And so when we look at the historicity, kind of the historical validity of Christ's resurrection, um, we see that A, there are more witnesses of Christ's resurrection than there are of these other things that we've been taught that are historical fact um, in, his, in history textbooks, right? We, we have a firsthand account of Julius Caesar and his assassination, but we also have not one eyewitness account, but over we have over 20 named eyewitnesses just in the Bible alone an eyewitness account written by someone from the ancient Americas that was written at the time of Christ's resurrection. And as, as the Apostle Paul wrote, there were over 500 individuals who saw Christ in his resurrected form in the, in the old world, and over 2,000, around 2,500, who saw Christ in the new world. Um, put that together with some modern witnesses, such as Joseph Smith, and we have around over 3,000 eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ's resurrection. Now, when we go into the accounts, that's a little bit different, right? We want to look at um, who's actually writing this material. And what's really cool is when we, when we look at Jesus Christ and his, his resurrection, we have Nephi who wrote it right at the time of the resurrection. But then we have John who writes his account around like 50, 60 years later. And then we have Matthew, who writes his account of his experience with the resurrected Christ around that same time frame as well. And so when we're looking at this, this isn't just something that our leaders are asking us to just have blind faith in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a big thing is that our faith really isn't that blind, and that we can look at some of these things from a historical lens as well. That's really interesting. So let me ask here, um, let me play the... Uh, what do we call it? Ahistoricity. Say, <laughs> <laughs> say the, the, the devil's advocate for okay. the ahistoricity of this miracle. Um, from a, because I could write a piece of paper right now, put it in a time capsule to be found by future generations that says, "Me and my five hundred closest friends all saw Bigfoot last weekend." Right. Right. And um, now, regardless of how many, what I could write any number on that piece of paper. Um, so. Let me me pose two questions here. One, um, if we restrict ourselves to separate documents as separate witnesses, you know, we might call the Book of Mormon one witness because we only have it from one source. Mm -hmm. It purports to be a a compilation of books just like the Bible, but we don't have access to the original text, and so it's essentially a single source. Although there are textual style and language usage and other suggestions that it really was a compilation of multiple books. But... Let's take the hard route and call that one source. And then for the Bible, we do actually have access to source text and to evidence that it was compiled by different authors and is a 
library, which is what Bible means, mm-hmm. um, if we do it that way. So Paul says 500, Book of Mormon says 2,500. Well, each of those are one. If we do it that way, how many do we have? Well, when you're looking at when you're looking at that, we have Paul writing, we have Nephi writing, and we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all writing. Um, but the cool thing about the Synoptic Gospels is they name witnesses. We have that 500, and that's just a uh, just mm-hmm. a value, right? But you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, and they're saying Mary saw Jesus Christ, and this was her experience. You have Salome and Joanna, and this was their experience with Christ on the road. We have Cleopas, and this is his experience that happened with Christ on the road mm-hmm. to Emmaus. And so when we're looking at named eyewitnesses, we have over 20 of those where this is like, this is what they saw. This was their experience with the Christ um, and just these like personal experiences. And so, yeah, to answer your question mm-hmm. of just like named eyewitnesses, we have 20. As far as accounts actually go, we have that of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, and then the book of Third Nephi that we find in the Book of Mormon as well. And uh, is the uh, the minimum, you know, like the scriptures always say, in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established, right? But for something historical, does the the minimum historical kind of evidence requirement is that? perhaps proportional to the difficulty of believing in something you know like it's it's easy to believe um that you know a roman emperor was assassinated perhaps Mm -hmm. there are all kinds of assassinations in the ancient world and um although i may you know on the basis of one or two documents i may not be completely convinced that the assassination of caesar happened exactly as presented i might still think well that's the kind of thing that's you know, it's already a proposition I would accept, and it requires very little evidence to um, require acceptance in a specific instance. Mm-hmm. Right. So, is that is there a proportionality to the the difficulty of believing a thing? Do do miracles require an overabundance of evidence to be established? Um, that's a good question. When I think about this, um, I think there's there's two parts, right? You have your evidence, and you have you know the actual faith. That, the, that component because you're right it is a lot easier to believe that a Roman emperor would be assassinated at the time it probably wasn't as believable just because this is the king of the known world at the mm-hmm. time and he gets assassinated and then after that there's the pattern of assassination that mm-hmm. kind of gets established but he's kind of the first case when you look at Hannibal and what he's claiming that he crossed over like 200 elephants <laughs> through the Alps that's incredible that, that's a kind of a miracle on its own, mm-hmm. right? And we only have like two witnesses, three witnesses of that. Um, and so I, I really don't know. I, I think in my mind, having more witnesses for those events that are harder to believe is definitely reassuring, but I wouldn't necessarily say that it is necessary for that proportionality to exist. Yeah, so... Uh, I, I was thinking about what Josh said, obviously, because like a person being resurrected is like a crazy uh, right. postulation. And, uh, but I, I think there are lots of things in history that are kind of ridiculous that also happened thousands of years ago that we do take as like a collective, like in history books and things as like pretty much fact. Like 
to think that like the Romans built a horse made of wood, like this huge wooden horse, and delivered it as a gift to another city. And then, like, they all climbed out of the horse and, like, massacred them. And they fell for it. And they fell yeah, for it. Yeah, they fell for it. That's the crazy like, part. Like, that is, that is kind of, I don't know. Like, if that wasn't a real, his, like, historical story, and it was presented to me in, like, a Shakespeare play, for example, I would be like, oh, what a genius fictional story idea, right. you know? And, I don't know, a lot of, a lot of crazy things have happened. And I, I mentioned thousands of years ago, because I think that's an important component, like... I know crazy things happened in World War II, but I can go to museums and, like, see the artifacts, and I don't know, that that brings me a, a step closer. There's just say. a lot more evidence that exists for stuff that's happened in the last more 200 recent. years than exactly. of years ago. Which is just, I mean, that's an inherent nature of right. passive time. Uh, but yeah, I think it is worth mentioning, like, there are probably things... The Trojan horse is just one idea that I had, but mm-hmm. lots of things that happened thousands of years ago that are, I don't know if they're equally as insane, just because Christ being resurrected, like, supersedes a, a principle of nature, which is when things die, they don't come back to life, right? you know, whereas the other stories do seem like they could physically occur, mm-hmm. uh, but re- in terms of ridiculousness, yeah, you see things that have been crazy that we right valid. So let's ask a general question about the nature of history. Because, you know, there are a lot of people, for example, who claim to believe in the Bible um, because it's been historically established. Mm-hmm. and But then they refuse to believe in something like the Book of Mormon because they say there's no historical evidence mm-hmm. for it, which is debatable in any case. <laughs> but um, is it even valid to say I believe in the Bible because of historical evidence? You mm-hmm. know, so... And let me be specific why I say it that way. Um, and, and, for example, you have someone like Nietzsche, who he writes a book, Genealogy of Morals, which is essentially etymology of morals. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to prove a moral framework based on, based on history, what words once meant, and what was once believed. Mm-hmm. But I kind of adopt the stance with, with Nietzsche and with the Bible, for example. You can only go so far as to prove that this is what was believed but that can never prove that it was true. Right. Or I can prove that, that the historical events in the Bible were um, documented and happened. You know, the, the, the extent of history would be to prove that a person named Paul existed and that he said these things. Mm-hmm. Or that a person named Jesus existed and that he said these things. Mm-hmm. He said, I am the Son of God. But history can never prove that he was the Son of God, only that he said so. Right. And to voice your point, like... Uh, the death of martyrs, for example, we frequently cite as evidence that they they were truly committed to the subjective ideas that they proposed. Like, the apostles seem to be have actually been committed to following Christ because mm-hmm. they're willing to be tortured and killed for it, as well as, like, thousands of others, not just from Christian religion, but, like, other religions. Like, right. I think it's valid to say a person named Muhammad said that he saw the angel Gabriel, and he did say that there was mm-hmm. a Quran, right? And, like, that's that's almost... It's like a falsifiable truth. Like, was there a person named Muhammad at this time? Did he say he saw the angel Gabriel? Like, you could say yes or no, and we have the records to say. But the non-falsifiable truth is if he saw the angel Gabriel. Which is the same truth here. So, like, the thing is, uh, we, we, like, call Christ's resurrection into question, right? Like, but we can't falsify if he was resurrected for real or not. Especially, unfortunately, maybe not unfortunately, this is just part of human nature, but, like, 
we claim really crazy subjective things all the time. And so, and we also lie. So it kind of, we're not inherently dependable, like, for example, animals are. Like, they just, <laughs> they just respond to natural stimuli and reality. But, like, mm-hmm. we construct our own realities and do all kinds of crazy things with them. And we have hallucinogenic drugs and so on and so forth. So uh, what, did I, what was I saying this for? Because Christ, like, we, I don't think, like, Caesar was either assassinated or not. And... That's that's a falsifiable truth. Right. Like, was Caesar assassinated or was he not? Uh, but so is Christ's resurrection. Was he re- was he resurrected or was he not? But the challenge we have is. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's true. That is a little bit different than, yeah. um, you know, so, some some of the other claims he made were perhaps not falsifiable mm-hmm. because the resurrection simply consists of him dying and being seen again as a resurrected being. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, of course, there are people who will refuse to believe any historical document that claims something that they believe to be impossible. Right. You know, I would, I, for example, um, no amount of historical evidence could convince me that there was once an anti-gravitational apple that fell upwards, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, it, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question about the nature of, of history, what it can actually prove. Mm-hmm. I would claim, for example, that anyone claim, who claims to believe in the Bible because of historical evidence doesn't actually believe in the Bible. Right. Mm-hmm. Or they believe in certain historical events in the Bible, but they don't, um, you know, they don't, if they claim that that's the reason for believing that, like, Moses was a prophet or anything like that, they're trying to pretend that they're not using faith when they actually are. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, faith is, is <clears throat> indispensable. It's, it's, um... It's, it's not optional for these kinds yeah. of things. And I think, too, when, we, like, when we're looking at the Bible, right, do we know that a kingdom of Israel existed? Yes, right? Mm-hmm. There's evidence in the Bible, but not only that, evidence of that in the writings of the other um, kingdoms that were around at the time of the yeah, kingdom of Israel. Around, right? So yeah. Like, there is a place named Jerusalem. It is the capital of the Jewish faith. Like, these things are historical fact. But you're right. We do need... We do need that that faith component, um, and when I was talking, when I was thinking about you know writing this paper, I just kind of started this paper on my mission, um, just as a way to keep my personal study kind of fresh. Um, but when I got back, I was kind of really thinking about like this idea of Jesus Christ's resurrection through a historical lens, um, and I asked my history teacher, I asked my history professor, not necessarily about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but I was just wondering like. What makes the difference between a legend and his, a historical fact, mm-hmm. right? And he said, well, usually a legend is used to, to like promote the values of, of a group, mm-hmm. right? So take, take, for instance, the, the assassination of Julius Caesar. Octavian really wanted that backing of that Caesar was wrongfully murdered, that the Senate was bad, mm-hmm. And that he was the rightful heir to the throne, and so being able to kind of frame this as this 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 historical maybe fact, mm-hmm. right? As this legend of Caesar valiantly going out and conquering territories, coming back and being brutally murdered by by a scared Senate is going to really help his case with right. the people, right? And so some people can claim that with with Christ's resurrection, right? This is something that is proving that. The Christian religion is is, is correct. 
mm-hmm. right? And you can say the same thing about the Bible. You can say the same thing about the Quran. You can say the same thing about the Torah. And so you're right. I think as much as historical fact or historical evidence, I should say, can really help us support our claims, it really does come down to faith because any type of evidence can be spun in any direction. Right. That's kind of the nature. That's, that's the nature of human argument is if you see something from one perspective and you're, I don't, I don't want to say stubborn, maybe stubborn is the way to go. <laughs> um, if you're stubborn enough about that belief, you could work and think until that you see that historical piece of evidence as something that is supporting your perspective. And right. so faith is necessary. Absolutely. And we see this in so many contexts. You know, for example, um, there's a lot of, I mean, we do give a lot of weight to history, and we recognize that, and therefore we try and prove a lot of things through different historical constructions. You know, like the, the nature of our nation. We have a lot of different people making different arguments about what the Founding Fathers actually believed, what they actually intended. You know, that's a lot of what constitutional law is, is what, was, what is the history of this idea, what was intended. Um, you know, people making different assertions about whether or not they were actually religious, whether they intended America to be religious, whether they believed in slavery, these different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and usually there's sufficient evidence to make a, a wide variety of different points, depending on how you emphasize and construe the evidence. Um, so I, d- I do think something interesting kind of related to this idea of what history can give us is a lot of history has to do with keeping things separate in time and space. So, for example, um, you might argue that you can prove that a person said a prophecy, but you can never... Well, some religious claims are unfalsifiable. A prophecy is presumably falsifiable, at least if it's time-bound. Right. If it's not time-bound, you could always say that its fulfillment is yet future. Right. But, um, and there's been a lot of attempts to, a lot of apologetics about this with Joseph Smith, for example, where um, not so much prophecies that have since been fulfilled, although there is some of that, but a lot of assertions about what was once believed that was unprovable at the time he wrote it. You know, a lot of stuff like about early Christians, um, Dead Sea Scrolls, that kind of stuff. He didn't say it was in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but he said this was a belief and then independently after his lifetime, you know, these apocryphal right. documents are found. And that's kind of a way that history can prove something. Right. And, and in the same way, prophecy, but that really requires that you, that you establish that the prophecy was made before the time that it was fulfilled. Right. You mm-hmm. know, like, in, and so a lot of people have problems with that in the Old Testament. There's a lot of prophecies that are fulfilled, especially in the New Testament. But... You, you need to be able to prove that the, the Old Testament documents are actually several thousand years older right. in order for that to be valid. Right. So, so what, what do you guys think about that? What, um, what can history do for us that way? Can, can history in that way prove religion? Can history prove subjective, moral, you know, right. truths like that? Okay, I think, like, history's role is to provide, like, a event. Like, at least the way I see it, I, tr- I, I, although history is not written subjectively, I like to see it, I mean, it is written subjectively, I like to see it as, like, an objective look into the past. And 
for example, if Jesus Christ was not resurrected, Christianity has fallen, essentially. If Joseph Smith never interacted with God, mm-hmm. there was no first vision, and that is a false survivable claim. Like, did Joseph Smith see God? Of course, there's a bunch of presuppositions, like what would God look like if he appeared and all this other stuff that you have to go through. Well, what but, makes you say it's falsifiable? It's either true or false, right. but is it falsifiable? Uh, I think it's falsifiable because if I had a time machine and could go back and watch the first vision happen, and I like saw that he was just goofing off in the woods and then came back and told his dad a story, then I'd say, oh, it's false. Because I was there as a historical witness, and I could like empirically observe that it didn't occur. Okay. That's why I see it as falsifiable. Okay, so falsifiable in, in theory, but not in practice. That's right. Practically, I can't use a time machine yet. Well, luckily, <laughs> we do have something that can be falsifiable, which is the Book of Mormon, right? It's either translated by Joseph Smith, and it is an authentic historical document, or it's not, mm-hmm. right? And that that brings up a whole slew of different questions right. about you know, the authenticity of the Book of Mormon. That, I don't know if you want to go into that or not right now, but... <laughs> Um, there's yeah there is falsifiable stuff about the restoration as well but yeah back to your point it's an interesting question because I think we always get just enough on either side to um, give us a rational basis for faith but to require us still to exercise faith you know there are a lot of things in the book of Mormon for example where we see Hebraisms, and we see historical assertions and patterns and names and religious practices and all these things about which Joseph Smith theoretically could never have known. And people usually either take the approach of trying to prove that he got lucky, well, you can't prove he got lucky, but saying he got lucky, or trying to prove that he was some kind of mad genius who knew all these things. And But even, even then, genius doesn't pull facts out of thin air. Genius might remember everything. Genius might perceive right. things. But there were certain things to which he just never had access Simple example, there's a verse in the Book of Mormon where it's a verse that is taken from Isaiah. The assertion is that the, the people in the Book of Mormon had the writings of Isaiah with them. And he, he has uh, this verse, and it, it's, it says, The ships of the sea and the ships of Tarshish. And um, there are both Hebrew and Greek, ver- or sorry, I mean, it might, it's either Hebrew and Greek or Latin and Greek, the, the Septuagint and then the Vulgate, I think it was those two versions of the Old Testament, one of them says just the ships of the sea. One of them says just the ships of Tarshish. Mm-hmm. He um, overwhelmingly likely did not have access to or knowledge of both of those Bibles and wasn't some clever genius compiling the two together to, to give historical evidence for future generations. Mm-hmm. So there are things like that. But for most people, that's not enough to prove that Joseph Smith was a prophet. Right. Um, at the same time, we sometimes almost see, like, it, it's almost like God will never give us just enough. Like, it's, it's theoretically possible to prove. Um, for example, if we had, you know, the book of Abraham is really interesting because Joseph Smith um, was, was translating documents that he held in his hands. They weren't given to him from an angel. They were just excavated from Egypt. Mm-hmm. And... Um, until the Chicago fire, they weren't destroyed. We, if, if those had been around for just a couple decades longer to kind of the fruition of modern Egyptology, people could have really done, like, this would have been the ultimate test. Like, is Joseph Smith a true translator? Right. 
we're going to compare this text to the to the translation of it. Um, you almost wonder if God made that fire happen, or, or He made sure that that document was right. in the Chicago well, Library to ensure that we're required to exercise faith. That is this is this unique to the latter days of being a Gentile and so forth? Because like clearly the Jews did see a resurrected Christ, and so does that mean? Oh, it does not matter what my personal opinion is. I saw this person's heart stop, and their body was completely white, and they were crucified on a cross, and I'm seeing them alive right now. Like I get, I get the impression that th- things that are happening in the Old Testament and New Testament are like these undeniable, like huge divine interventions in people's lives. You know, where it's like, it's just belief becomes ridiculous. Disbelief becomes ridiculous, just as ridiculous as believing in something crazy and supernatural is. So, but obviously this isn't the case because Moses splits with the power of God, splits the Red Sea. And then the Israelites, really not that far in the future, rebel against God and his commandments and don't even trust Moses. So it's, it's clear, like it's obvious to me that your, like your case I fully support. Like I think we are on the precipice of belief and of enough evidence, but not quite there yet, in order to cultivate the idea of faith. Faith is the first principle of the gospel. Like, it is a necessary part of your journey to God. But then, have we as human beings changed? Has something changed in our neurobiology where now, like, we're not allowed to see face-to-face evidence like they used to be able to see? You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I think there's kind of an interesting experience where Jesus Christ, when he appears in the ancient Americas, um, at first, on that first day, he's kind of talking to like a smaller group of people, and then on that second day, that's when a lot more people come, and that's that's kind of what's going on. Um, but I love there's a there's a verse where right before he jumps into the beatitudes, he's talking to to the multitudes, and he's saying, um, "Therefore, blessed are ye if ye shall believe in me and be baptized. After that, ye have seen me and know that I am." He's like, "You're going to be blessed, of course. Mm-hmm. You're following me." And, by, I mean, you've seen me, right? You saw me come out of the sky, like right. you know I'm the Christ. Mm-hmm. But then he goes, and then he goes in in verse two of Second Nephi or Third Nephi twelve, and again, more blessed are they who shall believe in your words, because ye shall testify that ye have seen me, and that ye know that I am. Um, something that I that I think is interesting is the same principle of believing on those special witnesses and the words of them. Um, that existed in that primitive church on the ancient Americas, as well as in the primitive church that existed in the old world, exists in our day as well, right? We have 12 to no, 15 men who are called as special witnesses of Jesus Christ. What that, what the, what, what the, or how that witness is, I don't know. If they've seen him face to face, I don't know. But we do know that they know. That Jesus is the Christ. That's why they're called the special witnesses. Um, and so that same principle of having to believe on the words of a special witness, I think that's been a constant throughout the entire history of the world. Even before the primitive church of Jesus Christ, you have to you have to put yourself kind of back in those Old Testament days. If you're not that woman who Elisha comes and fills up 
and has her oil of well or her well of oil just filled up over and over and over again during that famine and you hear that story or if you're not that servant boy who walks out and sees these just chariots of angels surrounding the this these Syrian and these Assyrian um, warriors kind of surrounding your house like these sounds like very supernatural events and they would be hard to swallow mm-hmm. um, one reason then I think that the children of Israel apostatized is they just didn't remember and they didn't trust in in those um, in the words of that one special witness that was Moses or even in the other 70 who saw Christ they trusted in the worldly tugs of those or the worldly influences of those uh, empires surrounding them they saw the successes that those empires were having and they wanted that um, and so there's always going to be that constant battle throughout all of the history of mankind I think between believing in the validity of the words of those who we call special witnesses of Christ and those who are seeing as worldly successful people. And that's always going to be a battle. I don't think that's ever going to change until Christ comes in the millennium. I think uh, as far as the whole evidences thing goes, I certainly don't think... You know, I would almost say something along the lines of nothing can be proven. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. Miracles are no proof. They're, right. no, they're no better than, um, you know, because we see, um, let's take it as, as, as a true proposition. You know, forgiven for a second, Christ was who he was, who he said he was and did what he said he did. There were still legions of people who refused to believe in him despite what they saw him doing. Right. And... <laughs> a lot of that had to do with their notions about well their expectations of who he would be he, right. he didn't fulfill yeah. their expectations but you know even if people aren't with Moses on the mountain surely they're seeing the flame and the clouds and everything else going on up there on the mountain and um, you know they saw the pillar of fire why did they why did they ever doubt after that they saw the sea opened and they walked through it you know right. um, and there's a great parable about this about Lazarus and the um and the other person, we don't get his name, Lazarus, and, and the other at the at the Day of Judgment. And he's in hell, Lazarus is in heaven. He's trying to convince Abraham, who's over, you know, Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, is what they say, which is heaven. And, and this rich man is trying to convince Abraham to send some angels to his friends so they can avoid the same fate as, as him. And he says, you know, if they won't accept the words of the prophets, even an angel isn't going to make a difference. Mm. So kind of suggests that even miracles don't necessarily necessarily prove anything. Um, a, a different idea I thought I had. Um, I think in the New Testament there's almost as much implicit evidence for the resurrection of Christ as there is explicit. Um, for example, there's this verse in, in Acts 1-3. We read about how it says... To whom he also showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And this forty days of training is presumably where we get a lot of the of the the doctrine we have in the epistles that we never hear of in the four gospels. You know, like where did Paul and Peter find out about all this stuff that Jesus mm-hmm. never talks about? Um Hugh Nibley has a really interesting pair of lectures on these 40 days on the BYU Speeches website, just called 40 Day Ministry, Parts 1 and 2. And he talks about how, because a lot of Christians believe in the resurrection of Christ, but they think it's something 
non-physical, something metaphysical, or is it is it the resurrection of his spirit or right. something like that, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me because that would suggest that he was a spirit, gained a body, died, was resurrected with a body, ate some honey and fish, right. and then lost his body again, <laughs> and he's back to being a spirit, you know, part of this incomprehensible... Um, non-spacious trinity right you know but but that's kind of besides the point you know like the resurrection was taken for granted it was it was so infallibly proved in the in the new testament and and among the people with whom the apostles were corresponding it was so undoubted that it was the the premise for other proofs you know such as resurrections for the dead right or sorry baptisms for the dead Mm. paul because that was actually a point of contention paul endeavors to prove the principle of baptisms for the dead based on the fact that Christ is, which we don't question, resurrected. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of implicit proof for that point, too. Yeah. To suggest that... Um, they definitely believed it, and other people definitely right, did. Right. A lot of people were completely convinced. It's interesting, though. I don't, I don't know about a lot about extra-biblical history about this kind of thing, but... I've always kind of wondered, like, where's all the other documents about, like, all these saints who came out of their graves? Right. Like, you know, <laughs> right. Wouldn't that be pretty surprising, too? Like, we only have a couple um, passages about that. And then what they do? Did they just, like, resume living? Or did they go back in their graves after a couple minutes? Or, you know? Hit the snooze button. Right. <laughs> um, okay, what you said about, uh, I'm going to revisit the, can anything be proven? And I think, like, uh, what, like, conversely, can anything be accepted? I think that's what I'm getting as the meaning of that statement. Like, we can reject uh, empirically observed things, and we do so all the time. Like, with optical illusions, for example, like, you see something on, you know, like a piece of paper that's designed to trick your eyes, and you, it's crazy because it's in a, like an empirical observation, like I'm looking at something with my eyes, and it's wrong, and I don't know how it's working. And so, like, you can look at something face-to-face and deny it pretty easy, easily. And that's just from a kind of an innocent perspective of, like, can you deny something innocently? And I think you can. For example, uh, something becomes much more difficult to accept when it just doesn't align with how you've been raised, for example. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, uh, a lot of Christians, for example, have difficulty reconciling evolution with uh, Christianity and just they might not have ever met a Christian or been on the internet who believed in evolution and Christianity mm-hmm. and so it totally makes sense like that is really difficult for them to accept because simply from a social perspective it benefits them not at all and they don't understand how those things can be reconciled and so that's kind of I would say the innocent version which happens sometimes. So I think the guilty version happens more frequently in the scriptures where people do have the evidence required, but because of pride slash just, let's just say Mm self-interest. Because of self-interest, they deny things that are empirically true. And so uh, that could be, that could have to do with the formulation of legends. Like I'm thinking uh, Octavius like might have known specifically what is true empirically, but decides to manipulate the truth. So in, in a sense, he has not accepted what has actually happened and in favor of something else. So I totally agree. I think we, like, even in a modern sense, like, I don't want to, I, I want to use scriptural examples because that's what I'm thinking of, but, like, I can think of so many modern examples where people, like, come face to face with something that's empirically true 
and deny it due to self-interest or other more innocent reasons. Mm-hmm. So this like that kind of makes me arrive at the conclusion like we're not really beings with the capacity. Like that's not our real thing as humans is to be these rational uh, adventurers in a rational universe, you know, like that we're just so good and so much better than everyone else. Like this is kind of an enlightenment idea, but oh my gosh, what's the one thing humans are good at? Being rational. So let's make our entire universe about using our rationality to discover everything. And then you have these really like edgy uh, moralities like arising because they're like, wait a second, we can't use this to figure out our morality. We have to create our own existence. Life is ridiculous and all these other strange, not strange ideas, but valid ideas if your only framework is um, logic, you know, reasoning. And that's how you're trying to navigate the universe. and I find myself in that trap sometimes. I'm like, I'm a philosophical man. That's what I have going for me. But uh, was it was it Hugh Nibley who said the only thing we're really good at is repenting and forgiving? Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. And you know what? That guy was a genius. <laughs> <laughs> if I mean, he's a really good uh, rational person. But the same thing, you could say that about Einstein. Deeply religious man. Uh, loves art. And strange for someone who could reason their way out of theoretical physics, you know, figure out these very deep, complex, rational problems about the universe. And he's like, well, my rationality stops when I want to be happy, essentially. Or my rationality stops when I want to have a deep relationship with someone else. Mm -hmm. Hugh Nibley thought the same thing. Like, my rationality doesn't take me everywhere. Now, I'm not saying this in a, uh, like, a flippant sense. (coughs) I think we should use rationality to discover things that are falsifiable or not and... I like archaeology. I think it's like a cool way to figure things out. But it's uh, simply um, going too far to kind of deify and idolize rationality mm-hmm. as, as infallible. Because, and you could even argue that is kind of the very fundamental nature of our universe to not not just the nature of humans, but maybe the nature of the universe in some physical sense, or the nature of knowledge. For example, like. At the most fundamental level, what would be, you know, the proof of a, of a fundamental constitutional particle of the universe? Well, there's this thing called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle that says that you can't actually prove anything <laughs> completely about that particle. Mm-hmm. You can't know both where it is and where it's going at the same time. Or um, this idea that we, um, and that and that has to do with the fact that. So to claim, let me back up a second, to claim that that particle has some kind of objective existence, um, that it does have a definite position, and then, you know, it's a wave and a particle, but definite position and trajectory requires that we not interfere with it and that it just has this existence. Because when we interfere with things, the way we look at things, or when we change the way we look at things, the the things we look at change is what Max Planck says. Does an atom move? If, and so, yeah, right. does a tree make a sound? Right. <laughs> does it, does it, it's the ultimate, it's the, the eternal question. Does a tree in a, in a forest create sound and when no one's around to hear it? But, and, and so you could argue that in a lot of things, we, we do kind of have self-interest and we have preconceptions and we have, you know, we don't come to really anything without bias. We have different historians trying to prove different things about the Founding Fathers. We have different people trying to come to different moral conclusions based on neurological, biological 
data about homosexuality and whether or not it's a choice and those kinds of things. And everyone has their own agenda when they even begin a question like this. A person doesn't... Um, I don't know if a person ever really does something, something like knowingly that. Completely or objectively. Right. Knowingly you always, or there's always going to be bias that exists. And that's just human nature. Right. right. And so when I, when I kind of think about this too, I think, I think about... When you think about rational fact... Right? That has been changing ever since rational fact has been established. Like, if you were to go back and tell Dalton, the guy who, found, who like found what the atom was, and said, yeah, well, there's just like this electron cloud that exists around it. We don't really know where the electron is at all times, but, you know, it's, it's like around there somewhere, and they like form all these orbitals, and it's actually a wave. Um, he would have looked at us like we were crazy and said, no, I'm looking at it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when, the, the big point I'm thinking about right here is rational fact is always going to change whether we like it or not. It's always evolving. We're always discovering new things. And so when it comes to these questions of historical, historical fact or even just questions of faith, right, I think, well, especially in questions of faith, it is always going to be more about personal experience than it will be about actual rational fact when it comes to, to faith, right? That's when we look at Joseph Smith and after he had the first vision, one of the lines that really stands out to me is when he says, I knew it, I knew God knew it, and I can't deny it, right? He could have heard the next day that there's in the newspaper that they just found something, a census from ancient Roman times, and Jesus Christ is not listed on there. Mm-hmm. And he still would believe in the Christ because he had personal experience. Right. He saw him. Right. right, And so I think when it comes down to faith and when we're really thinking about rational, using rational fact um, either in place of faith or something to support faith, we really have to keep in mind that at the end of the day, rational experience or rational fact changes, but experience won't mm-hmm. change. And that is really what faith comes down to is do we have that personal experience with the thing that we're trying to have faith on? Or do we not? Right. Well, and the classic saying is, in the absence of experience with God, it can be easy to doubt. Or sorry, I said that totally wrong. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Those who, let's see, it's like this. It's uh, in the absence of experience with God, men invent rational arguments to justify the experience of the absence of God. Um. Let me, let me bring in a different idea here, um, kind of about hum, human nature, objectivity, um, rationality. How much do we, this is a, a general question, you can go anywhere with this, but how do we, how should we, how much do we trust kind of our, just our inherent involuntary dispositions and instincts, you know? And that may depend on your, and, and let me clarify, but that may depend on your perspective. Like, is it just kind of evolutionary biological right. favorability? You know, is it just like fight or flight life instincts kind of thing? But for example, um, let's say we lived, have you, have both of you read 1984? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's say we live in that world where the party controls all information and they claim that history doesn't exist if there's no documentation. If we destroy all records of a thing, then that thing never happened. If we destroy all records of a person, that person never existed and you can never disprove it. Mm -hmm. And 
there's something innate in us that rebels against that idea. Like with Winston in the book, the main character, there's something right. about him that tells him there is has to be some kind of objective reality. And there are different, you know, from a religious perspective, you might say, well, everything is written down in the records of heaven. Mm -hmm. You know, but that's still kind of this appeal to this, there being some some historical, physical, tangible words that prove it, you right. know, that, that, um, but so when we have instincts like that, like this, this visceral rebellion against this idea that history only exists insofar as it can be demonstrated, um, should we trust those kinds of things? And what if I'm a person who's inclined to agree with the party, you know, mm -hmm. that, well, if there's no historical documentation of a thing, then if no one was around to hear the tree fall, then it made no sound, mm -hmm. or it never fell. So to clarify, like when C.S. Lewis says, the fact that we have a longing to be with our eternal creator suggests Right, that he says, if I life. find in myself a desire for which there is no satisfaction in this, in this world, then it must be an indication that I was made for another world. Right. You know, I'm, I get hungry, there's food. I have the sex instinct, whether well, such a thing as sex. Mm -hmm. A bird or a duck wants to swim, whether well, such a thing as water. Mm -hmm. But if I find in myself this unsatisfiable longing that this world cannot satisfy, well, it must be because I was made for a different world. Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps not everyone thinks they find in the in themselves that unsatisfiable that's, longing. That's right. But, Which um, is is why I think people have trouble uh, trusting these natural dispositions. And I think I actually think the idea of these natural dispositions is is very socially constructed. Oh, yeah. So, for, for example, we have people who are, we call neurally, neuro, uh, not, there's neurotypical people and aneurotypical people, right? So, like, your brain works this way, and it's normal. We have a word, neurotypical. But yeah. typicality is entirely a function of... It's oh, a, it's, it's, a relation, it's, it's relation yeah. to other it's people's statistic. brain. So you, all you're saying is you belong to the majority... Which, that's the argument in 1984, too. That's the first thing Winston writes down in his journal is truth is not statistical. Mm -hmm. And then eventually he believes the opposite. Truth is statistical. Mm -hmm. If everyone believes it, if this is what is normal for everyone's brain, right. then this is what is to be trusted. Right. You know? So you have these, uh, and you would say, hey, oh, there's so many things I could say about this. But, <laughs> um, essentially, you have, this, uh, you're, you have this degree of autism, for example. And you don't see the world like we see it. And this is really interesting because it touches on literally the fabric of reality, mm -hmm. right? Like you, if you're blind, like to a blind person who's born blind, uh, which most people who are blind can see some types of light, like little degrees of light. But let's just say there's someone who has no perception of light. Like they just have no visual capabilities, right? They just have no eyes. They have no eyes. Whatsoever, or they're, they're their eyelids Samson are sealed shut. had the Samson you know? surgery. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they have no capacity to have vision. To them, empirically, from their observation of the world, light isn't real. And, there's, and you can never you, prove to you them You can never prove exists. to them. Light actually becomes a non-falsifiable part of reality to a completely blind person because... There, there's no way to even explain it to them. Same thing if you can't taste anything, salt becomes a non-falsifiable thing. So when we say falsifiable, we're working on the, the presupposition that empirical evidence is live-feeding your reality. The other thing that makes this 
and I'm a neuroscience major, and so is Max. Oh, yeah. That's why mm-hmm. we were talking about this. But hallucinogens also are very interesting They're because you can have this compound, chemical compound, and we understand what the chemical compound is made of and interacts with your brain. And in a way we understand, but is so complex, we can't track what's really going on. That's how I would describe yeah. what, what's going on is from our current capacity of scientific observation. And you can have a hallucinogen and see things with your empirical senses. Mm-hmm. You can have cognition. There's real cognition. And what we would say is fabricating something. But people who have used hallucinogens have not suggested that what they're experiencing is a fabrication. For example, in uh, Native American societies that have used these hallucinogens and religious ceremonies for thousands of years, try convincing them that what they're experiencing is not reality. Mm-hmm. To them, it absolutely is reality. Yeah. In fact, to them, it's a transcendent reality that's more real than the, the reality we're experiencing right now. And they're not gathering that from some type of like rational exercise. They're gathering that from their ex- empirical senses and like the same things we use to prove everything else. Yeah. That, no, that's absolutely true, and we can't really get away from that. That is the unavoidable, implicit basis of everything we believe. Like, you know, if you, you, you were saying that thing about Joseph Smith and the first vision in the time machine, even though it's practically impossible, you constructed this thought experiment whereby you, through your sensory perceptions, can prove this thing. Right. And, um, you know, let's say there are, let's say there were no physical records whatsoever, Let's say that um, time travel is not only technologically but scientifically impossible. Mm-hmm. And let's say that there's no records being kept in heaven. Is there even a history? Does history exist right. if it cannot be sensorily yeah. perceived? And, I mean, kind and of this idea is yeah. everywhere. Like it's in, it's in 1984, you know, like this idea of collect- if a thing is collectively hallucinated, then it actually happened. And mm-hmm. some people are so viscerally opposed to this idea of objective reality that that's what they claim about Joseph Smith and the others. It was a group collective hallucination experience, you know. And it's, this idea is everywhere. It's like, it's in Harry Potter. Is this real or is it in my head? Well, of course it's in your head, but that doesn't mean it's not real. <laughs> right? Right. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's fabric of reality. So yeah, sure. we're really untangling everything here. <laughs> I think... There's, there's this verse that I was just reminded of. It's in Doctrine and Covenants, section 93, which is, it's got a lot of stuff in it to unpack for sure. Um, but I love verse 30. Um, there's a couple of classes that I think every college student should take. Number one is physics. It will change the way you look at the world for sure. Um, but then the second one I'd say is sociology. I think it's a really, really important thing to understand. And I think it kind of goes back to this. This is something that um, my sociology professor kind of talked about on the first day of class. And in verse 3, it says, All truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it to act for itself as all intelligence also. Otherwise, there is no existence. Um, which then just goes back to the fact that, yeah, um, there there's kind of those two kind of competing, well, not competing, well, maybe competing, of just personal agency versus that sphere of influence that you're put into Mm -hmm. right and i think that's important to understand when we when we look at some of these things um when we look at kind of the nature of of that history and why some people are more likely to accept it and why some people are more likely to reject to reject that history is what's the sphere of influence that they've been brought up in the blind man is a lot more likely to reject light 
mm-hmm. if he's brought up by only other blind men who have also only been brought up by blind men. Right. And so on and so forth. And so that's, that's something just kind of to keep in mind as we keep going throughout this mm-hmm. is just what's the sphere of influence that people have. And maybe just another question is why does God give us kind of differing spheres of yeah, influence? Yeah, because we're not, we're not, it's not very fair <laughs> <laughs> in terms of, but, but here's, okay, so this is a, this is kind of divergence from what we're talking about. Yeah. But, um, so we've talked about faith and I think it's been, um, that's one of your hypotheses in your paper, Max. And uh, we we've kind of assumed people understand what we're talking about when we say faith. And I think they I think they do. Uh, hopefully, with our large discussion, you've drawn some conclusions. But I would say faith is in the sense that we're saying, which is uh, believing without seeing, is not. It hasn't been around for that long. Uh, not at least explicitly. I think faith, for example, in the Old Testament is almost—it's—it's it's most frequently used in terms of your relationship to someone else, and we still use it that way sometimes. For example, like I have faith that my friend will show up right. to go to lunch with me, and that is a, a belief you could say without evidence, just because we don't predict the future perfectly, which is kind of implicit, mm-hmm. but. Uh, like Abraham describes faith as I have faith in God which is almost the same thing as saying like I love God or like I trust God and it means something different it becomes a human relationship essentially not just a human relationship it, it, it engages the relationship part of you rather than the rational part of you and we're kind of pulling out our rational strings when we're talking about faith because uh, in, I guess in, a, in the pursuit of justification of belief but like the the justification of belief done by faith with like Old Testament prophets is saying, oh yes, my faith is justified because of the kind of being God is with whom I am in a deep relationship. Yeah. So it's it's really a different dynamic when you read about that stuff. Like faith wasn't a way to like maneuver around a difficult intellectual proposition, but faith was a way to like declare and verify your relationship with another person. And I think at kind of the end of the day, too, faith, I mean, it is, in a sense, seeing, believing in things that you don't see or haven't had, like, a sensory perception mm-hmm. of. Um, but I think at the end of the day, faith is always going to be based on an experience, maybe not the experience of seeing the Christ or having an angel come down and tell you the Book of Mormon is true or something like that. Um, but it will either be based on an experience that you personally have or based on an experience that someone else has had. Um, and when talking about kind of the gifts of the Spirit in Doctrine and Covenants 46, it says in verse 13, To some it is given by the Holy Ghost to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he was crucified for the sins of the world. But then in verse 14 it says, And to others it is given to believe on their words that they also might have eternal life, that they continue to be faithful. Um, and so at the bottom line, I don't think there will ever be an instance of of being required to have faith without first, of having uh, an initial experience. I mean, that's one reason why as missionaries we're asked and really encouraged to invite people to pray about the Book of Mormon right after the first lesson. 
and ask God for themselves to know if it's true. Is because as soon as they have a personal experience with the Christ, then they have some basis wherewith they can build their faith. And that's important because, as we see with the cycle of faith leading to repentance, repentance leading to making covenants, and that in turn helping you to have the Holy Ghost with you, and that cycle just repeating over and over again, if there's no initial experience to first build that off of, then it's going to be really hard to first get to that changing phase. Yeah, it's the catalyst. Right, and so you need that catalyst, and so that's why I think there really won't be an instance where we're required to have faith without first having just a base of a personal experience to build on. Oh, man, so many ideas I want to go <laughs> um, Yeah, I agree. Like, missionaries are not there to carry evidence so much as to catalyze experiences. Mm-hmm. But this idea of having experiences is still, it doesn't so much escape the framework of sensory perception, apprehension of truth, so much as it just introduces kind of a sixth sense, right? yeah. a spiritual sense, right? <laughs> And we, we, we can't ever escape this language. Like, and it's, it's so interesting because language, the, the words to which we have access and the language we use, you know, it, it shapes and it constrains our ideas. Yeah, linguistic the, reality. Like the, the Greeks, for the Greeks, you know, the word for thought and the word for speech was the same thing, logos. Um, but so like Hebrews 11, he says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We're still getting this like substantive, like is, you know, and, and that's how I have experienced the Holy Ghost. It's like, it's something within me. It's like another, it's like a spiritual organ. <laughs> Feeling it. Right? Uh-huh. And it's still some kind of extra sensory perception, you know. Um, I want to talk about this idea of believing on the words of others. And we actually kind of had this earlier too with the, the Nephite apostles who are told, you know, blessed are you for believing on me, but more blessed are they who believe on you without Christ having seen me. All yeah. the time. All Which, the time. It seems really weird, especially for us sensory beings, because it seems to place a premium on secondhand experience right. or secondhand belief. Um, but I think what he's really telling us is that this sixth sense is actually the highest of all sensory perception and the most accurate organ for perceiving truth. He's not saying that. Um, it's better not to have seen me than to see me. Right. Of course not. Of course it's better to, to see Christ. Mm-hmm. But what he's saying is that the spiritual sight, the the witness of the Holy Ghost is stronger than the witness of the eyes. Mm-hmm. And and so he's and, and same thing there. I think this uh well depends how you look at the whole second hand experience thing there with the believing on the faith of others. Um right. It could just be kind of a conviction that they really believe what they're saying. And if that's what you mean, I think that kind of faith um, can only ever be preparatory. It can't, it's, it's a, it's, it can't be final. That kind of faith will not right. save a person. It's, um, I think event, if that's what you mean, I think eventually every person who has that second kind of faith will have to graduate to the first kind of personal mm-hmm. faith. Um, but it could also be, you know, the first person has had some kind of spiritual experience and in believing on their faith, in, in hearing them testify, you have a spiritual experience right then, in which case it's really firsthand anyways. Right. Firsthand encounter with the Holy Ghost. Um, so let me offer you the modern antagonism to yeah, this yeah. idea, which, uh, like, 
a lot of people are still under the impression that we're like, it's hedonism versus Christianity. It's sensory versus spiritual, like it's always been, which I think is true to, true to a degree. But here's like my initial discomfort with the idea, which is I know people who have claimed to act on the sixth spiritual sense and done things that are both morally reprehensible and Horrendous. don't agree with the spirit, the sixth sense that I have experienced, yeah. meaning it must be exist beyond some type of objective layer or else. For example, if we both see a stop sign, person A and B, anyone with the visual capacity, with the visual sense, perceives the stop sign and can give you the, the details. It's an octagon. It says stop on it with these letters and so on and so forth. And, I mean, you could potentially claim and deny that's not a stop sign. It's green, whatever. But... Uh, essentially, the, if you could, like, let's say you could dig into their brain and see what their s- sense of vision is telling them, you would always see that they're seeing the stop sign. Uh, but with the spiritual sense, it becomes really difficult because we're like, wait a second, but what if we have the same sense, you know, uh, similar to other people around me, then why in the world isn't it interacting with ob- objective reality in the same way? Well, and who knows? If I don't know if it's been done, if people do brain scans of people as they're supposedly having spiritual experiences and if you see localized brain activity in a certain area perhaps the spirit interacts especially with a certain part of our brains I don't know Um, if you believe that spirit is really a type of matter anyways that's not really problematic Um, I think there's a sorry there's a there's a couple of things that I have to think about this when it comes to like spiritual truth and making sure that it's actual of the, of the spirit versus just like a thought or right. something like that um, which is I think God kind of works in pairs with this the first pair that we really think about is in Doctrine and Covenants section 8 where it's going to be kind of in our heart and in our mind um, sometimes we kind of point to section 9 of the Doctrine and Covenants as like this is the way we receive revelation mm-hmm. which for some people it's not right sometimes it's not a burning in the bosom I know for me it's not <laughs> that's not how I receive the spirit um, and that was just subjective to Oliver Cowdery versus just the rest of human kind. It was a specific revelation. It was a specific revelation for Oliver Cowdery. Um, so, but the first pair that we know of is in our heart, and our mind, our thoughts, and our and our emotions, our thoughts, or our feelings. Those are going to agree, I think, in that first pair. But then that's the second pair that God really gives us is that of our own personal revelation. And the revelation that is received by the person who has stewardship for us, right? The key holder. When something truly is from God, both our personal witness and the witness of that person who has stewardship over us or for us is going to agree. If, I, if I'm struggling with a concept that I learned from general conference or something like that, and I pray about it, and study it out in my mind, if it really is from God, I can receive a personal revelation or just a feeling that that is true. And my key holders, maybe the bishop or even the prophet himself is going to have the same revelation that agrees. And so when it comes to personal revelation and kind of thinking about, well, he had a different experience than I did, or he had the spiritual truth or the spiritual thing that seemed to contradict what my spirit is telling me. I think, number one, it's important to keep in mind, again, that sense of the sphere that we're placed in 
to act in, his sphere could be completely different than my sphere, and that's why we're getting contradicting mm-hmm. values or contradictory um, things that that we got revealed to us. But then the second thing is is was was that confirmed by the source who by by the source of someone who has keys mm-hmm. uh, or stewardship for that idea as well. Yeah. But then we're stepping back into 1984. Yeah. Because you're just like submitting to the hierarchy. Like if the leaders have this specific idea and you are not aligned, you have improperly used your sense and you must realign. And and it's important to point out that both the individual and their superior can be out of alignment. Right. With the truth. You know, um, they're fallible as well. I think... I think we're kind of chasing something inescapable here. <laughs> Let me kind of offer maybe a concluding thought about this. Um, ultimately, it comes down to the light of Christ. That is the, the ultimate arbiter of truth. That is the organ of spiritual apprehension. And we can't escape that. And that is a highly subjective experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and... There really is no such thing as a... Rationality has a lot of power, a lot, a lot going for it. But um, I'm going to say an idea I have. I'm not sure if I entirely believe it. But <laughs> it seems like, seems like ultimately there is no non-subjective apprehension of truth in any way, in any form, physical or metaphysical. Um, and, you know... Because we all come at it with different first principles. We all have different epistemological frameworks or models, you might say. Like mm-hmm. um, like I said, nothing could ever convince me that there was once an anti-gravitational apple. Mm-hmm. No amount of historical evidence. So my framework disallows certain things from, from historical proofs. And, and, and spiritual claims are the same way. I rely upon my own inner feeling. I don't believe everything everyone ever says just because they say they had a spiritual confirmation right. thing. I met some pretty crazy people on my mission. <laughs> you know, like I met a guy who, he was a member of the church, but he claimed to have seen Jesus Christ and was writing his own book of revelations. And he, I, I think he, he thought he had. Mm-hmm. I don't know what actually happened or what the experience was. He seemed convinced, but I think there was something off about his experience. I, I don't know if it was a... A legitimate experience which he misinterpreted or has taken too far or if it was a, a false or deceptive you know devil kind of experience I don't know but his his because of certain things that he claimed that Jesus Christ told him he also put himself outside of my bound of things I was willing to accept evidence for you know right. um, and so but even when we when we appeal to some kind of objective reality, we always still have in the back of our minds some kind of, of ultimate sensory proof. Like, mm-hmm. ultimately, there are the books that I kept in heaven that have everything written down, mm-hmm. and it's all there. Or, ultimately, the sensory experience of Jesus Christ is going to be imposed on every single person when he comes back. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. They won't, it won't be possible any longer to deny his physical existence in front of you. Um, so I don't know. I don't think we can escape this. That there is, so that eventually it all comes down to some kind of subjective experience, which the spiritual subjective experience is, is 
the light of Christ and the right. apprehension of truth through. But we believe that just, you know, everyone has that. For some people, maybe it's buried under certain kinds of mental sickness, but... Um, that will be taken into account, we believe, in our framework. Ex- exactly. So this is the same conclusion that Kant draws, and that's why he says, let's scrape everything off. The only thing that can be real is that I'm thinking. I think, therefore, I am. Like That's the only thing that can be real now, because it turns out everything I see might be a fabrication. The world could have started five seconds ago. These memories aren't planned, and so on and so forth. I'm a Boltzmann brain. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, that's, that's a beautiful classic conclusion. And I think different frameworks have emerged, and some are made very popular because they're forcibly imposed on people. Uh, And I think some are made popular because they're rationally sound. I think some become popular because they make... They're practical. practical. They, you know, quantum mechanics works to help us make computers and and everything else, you know? So there's different reasons that these different systems emerge. And I even find myself switching between systems. Like when I'm in a research laboratory, I'm thinking in a very secular, everything must be proven, everything must be procedurally done correctly, and so on and so forth. Very skeptical mindset because that framework uh, applied to my situation achieves the goal that I'm looking for. But honestly, in regular life, I don't even have goals sometimes. Like I'm just trying to have some nice aesthetic experience, you know? Like... I'm changing all the time. I'm really, uh, I'm pretty inconsistent myself with these systems of subscription. So I totally agree with your point. And I think we've been uh, talking about different systems and we've kind of like stepped as far away from the systems as possible to get to like the very beginning of our uh, adventure of truth. (laughs) And then, and then I think we're, we would restart. And if we were to move forward, we'd probably end up with some theological construct similar to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because that makes sense to us already and we've committed to it and it it makes us happy in these ways and we've had these experiences that confirm it. So we could go forward and backward a lot of times. I wanted to ask one more question. Uh, So with, and this is uh, less woo-woo, it's more pragmatic, so maybe I'd like to hear your pragmatic opinions on this, but just in terms of... uh, theological academia and so on and so forth this the whole idea of an exploration of a podcast like this um if ultimately we rely on our faith ultimately we have it seems like we have enough evidence to believe and move forward faithfully like max has explained in his paper historically with all the there are a lot of factors but historically the resurrection of christ has similarities to other historical events that happen at the same time uh what is the point of I reducing faith? Like, are we on a quest to finally not need to have faith anymore? Are we trying to make our beliefs more rational to believe? Uh, and mm-hmm. like, what if all we if the first step is faith, and ultimately we will never have enough evidence to not need the faith to believe? then is it a completely pointless endeavor to try to accumulate evidence? What would be the point of that? Mm-hmm. I think there's a niche for it, you know. I think, kind of going back to that whole sphere of influence, for some people, the the supplemental um, information provided by religious academia will help strengthen the faith. It will never replace that faith. 
Um, but it helps strengthen it and it helps provide some backing. I myself think pretty logically, right? And so kind of reading these reading these academic insights into religious ideals and principles helps me gain new perspectives and helps me to continue to increase my faith. Um, but when we really think about it, at the end of the day, Alma teaches that eventually that faith will be a perfect knowledge. And that's really what what that faith grows into. The timetable of that faith becoming a perfect knowledge will vary between individuals due to how they use their agency and what their sphere of influence is. Um, but at the end of the day, the promise is that that faith can and will grow into a perfect knowledge. And once we have that perfect knowledge, it really does come down to, well, how did we act when we were in the process of growing up with that faith? Mm-hmm. Right. I think a lot of what we said has not really had implications for, for final judgment, for example, because we, we do believe that God will judge everyone according to their circumstances and their experiences and their rational basis for belief, you know, whether um, the the conducive faith-building experience that they and circumstances that they had or didn't have. Um, I think... I, I think I'd have to go back to your relationship point, though. Um, I don't think that we're ever going to escape the, the necessity of faith being kind of an implicit trust in our relationship with God and the nature and character of God. I still struggle to believe what it means for God, or to, to understand what it means for God himself to have faith. We're told that faith is his power. It is the power by which he operates and creates the universe, and it is one of his you know, defining characteristics. Um, but I think, you know, like there, there's an interesting example in the Book of Mormon where um, the brother of Jared is asked, um, maybe I can find it real quick. He, he's asked, will you believe, or do you believe the words that I will say? Or something like that. Um, will say. It's uh, Ether, yes, Ether 311. And the Lord said unto him, Believest thou the words which I shall speak? And thereafter, only thereafter, does Jesus Christ reveal himself in his full body to the brother of Jared. And this is, you know, anybody at all, how could you ever answer that question affirmatively? Mm-hmm. Because what if they're just messing with you and... If you say no, they're going to tell you the truth. And if they, if you say yes, they're going to lie to you just to mess with you, you know. Um, faith has something to do with this knowing and trusting the character of God. The kind of, you know, this is, Joseph Smith says this in the lectures on faith. He says there are three, you know, three um, qualities of or prerequisites to faith and they are one the idea that God exists two a correct idea of his character perfections and attributes because you can't he says if you have a if you have this idea of a raging murderous heathen God it's impossible to exercise faith on that because it um, it just doesn't exist is the is the basic assumption there but it's uh, it's impossible to exercise faith on God if you have an incorrect perception of, of who or what God is. 
And then third is to yourself be walking a path that God approves. Um, and so maybe that's a really difficult combination. It's hard to have all three of those things. Um, but I think we're never going to escape or graduate from that aspect of faith of trusting in God and his character and the kind of person he is. Um, we may get more and more tangible evidence. Um, and But even then, you know, that scripture that you read from DNC 93, and we could do a whole podcast on every verse from DNC 93, <laughs> but it says truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it. That's a really interesting idea that God has placed truth in a sphere and it's independent in that sphere and maybe constrained somewhat in that sphere, maybe um, what we might call adapted or accommodated to our understanding to Im- to imperfect human. You know, if, if God tells us everything exactly as it was, we wouldn't understand a word he said. So I don't know what I'm trying to get at here. I think um, basically I think the aspect of faith that will never cease to be necessary is that relational faith, mm-hmm. that, that trust in, in a relationship that's built on experience. And that was the TMI podcast. Thanks for listening. Take it as it is. Accept us for who we are. Talk to you later. <laughs>